I'm going to now read uh, from verse 12 of chapter 1, and I'll go through verse 1 of chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after win. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. May God help us to understand this is most precious Word. I said last week, I, I, I really do believe this is a great book uh, for our time, particularly uh, those of us who call Annapolis home. We can identify after we've read Ecclesiastes that either the book is an incredibly depressive book or it's an incredibly insightful understanding of our time, as if the writer was living today. Even the writer of Moby Dick, Herman Melville, recognizes that this is a, an exceptional, special book. But we also have to realize, I was reading an article in the New York Times that said that this current generation, what often is called millennials, uh, are disillusioned with the American dream. If you know what the American dream is, it's simply if you work hard enough, long enough, then you will find success. You'll make it. The problem is today's narrative, at least among that generation, is no matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, it doesn't work, at least for them. If the author is not Solomon, we said last week, it has to be someone very much like him. Someone who has seen it all, done it all, experienced it all, and now is looking back at everything that he has ever done, and he's drawing lessons and giving them to us. He asks a singular question that the whole book seeks to answer, but never really does. The question is this, it's found in verse 3, way back at the beginning. So what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? The word toil there means to strive. So another way to understand it is, what does man gain by all his striving, which he strives under the sun? His whole life has been a pursuit of answering that question for himself and really for all of mankind. And his conclusion is found in the verse before where he says it's all vanity. And we said last week the word vanity is the Hebrew word havel, which simply means meaningless or emptiness. Sometimes it's translated frustration when, when the New Testament writers uh, uh, translated the Old Testament it, from Hebrew into Greek. The word that they chose 
of for Havel is the word frustration. So if you ever go over to Romans 8, when we were in Romans, it says that all creation is what? Frustrated. That word that is right there, if, it was, if they were speaking in Hebrew, would have been Havel, the very same word that is here. It's how the world feels under the conditions that we live in today. Our text for this morning, it's at the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. He's anticipating the kinds of questions that would rise in our hearts if it's true that all is vanity. If the conclusion to the question, what good is it, all of our striving, all of our work, all of our toil is nothing then what about wisdom? Is it a waste of time? Is is pleasure a waste? Is work a waste? Is seeking a legacy, leaving something behind that proves that you were here, that you made this place better than when you found it, is that also a waste? And the preacher tells us that he personally has already climbed all those mountains. He has sought out all the wisdom that can be found. He has, he has uh, worked incredibly hard and accumulated a lot of things. And he says, what you're looking for isn't on top of those mountains. I've already been there. And so let's follow the preacher into the futility of these things that which we're looking to be the source of meaning and joy for our lives. And then at the end, I want to, to remind us, I want us to remind ourselves where real meaning and joy come from. Because they do exist. But they can only be found in this singular source, not in these things. The very first one is the vanity of wisdom, verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I think Ernest Hemingway agrees with him when he says happiness in intelligent people is the rarest of things. Our city and And our church is filled with people who have done great things. You know, Annapolis is a a wealthy community. But the currency of our culture here is not money. It is in power and achievement. You know, in a lot of churches, at least the churches I've been part of, there's been great people. But the things that they have done have paled in comparison to the things that some of the people in this room have accomplished in their lifetime. You know, and a lot of people, it's because they started a business or they've made a, uh, a contribution to education or to in the area of, of medical practice. But here, we literally sit every Sunday with people who have saved the world. whether it's people who work at that place that nobody can say what they do, or just the, the, the sheer number of military people who have climbed into jets or into uh, the bridges of aircraft carriers and saved the world. We have 
people in our church that not only were top guns, but they trained the top guns that we all watched movies about. And I, and I think sometimes we tend to look at that and, and we marvel at those people and the things that God has allowed them to do, but I think Ernest Hemingway is right. That if that is where we get our source of joy and meaning, in the end, it is like chasing after the wind. This is what he means in verse 15 when he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What he's saying there is, you can work incredibly hard to save the world, but there is only one Savior of the world. You know, I think of the generation that uh, Floyd and, and, and Jim are part of in that what's often called the greatest generation who saved the world from the, the Nazis and uh, the empire of Japan back in World War II. And it was an incredible feat. But are we less, are we any more safe today? Are there still people on the horizon? All you have to do is ask the people in Saudi Arabia as the drones lit up their oil fields. What is crooked cannot be made straight apart from a different source. We are broken people who live in a broken world with broken things. Bertrand Russell great philosopher said that men who know the most are the most gloomy. Because the more you know, the more you know it's broken. It just doesn't work. What's the conclusion that the preacher makes here for us in verse 17? He says, I've applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He says, here's the two things. You've you've got wisdom on one end and, and, and you've got foolishness on the other. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. Both, not just one. Verse 18, 4, In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know, one of the things that Ecclesiastes does to us that we don't like is it makes us think about things that we don't like to think about. It's one of the reasons I think it's one of the least read books in the entire Bible. I know it's one of the least preached. All you have to do is go looking for commentaries. Why talk about all the brokenness? Why so much discouragement? We would rather distract ourselves. Erwin Entz, who was a pastor in Columbia, who's now in Washington, D.C., he said this, If Jesus is coming back to make all things sad untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must do, be to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus' power. It magnifies it. You see, one of the things that Ecclesiastes is doing for us is, is it's running through all of these things that we have medicated ourselves with to distract us that we are broken people in a broken world with holding on to broken things. He's showing us the mirror so that we can hear how big God truly is. He does it in this chapter too. He spends all of chapter 2 telling us about the broken things. And then at the very end, he says where the source is for true meaning and true happiness. 
the vanity of pleasure is next at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then down in verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He had access because he had all the wealth, at least that we would have described. It would have been someone who is a billionaire in the in the United States. There's nothing that you could not buy or do. That's what the the the, the preacher is saying. I, I've got all the money in the world. I can do anything I want to do, and I have denied myself no pleasure. And he he singles out two pleasures. Do you see them? The first one is laughter, and the second one is wine. He talks about how he has had much laughter, he, whether he's brought in comedians or he has uh, uh, court jesters as if it was the Middle Ages or, or just simply uh, someone to lighten the room. And he said, I have heard all the jokes in the world. But he agrees with Robin Williams' assessment of comedy. You see, we don't... Because we're on the audience side, we get the fruit. We don't see the striving that goes into the creating the laughter. But Robin Williams, before he died, before he committed suicide, told us. He said, have you ever thought about the depths of loneliness that the best comedy comes from? He's not the only one. Many other comedians have said something similar, that good comedy comes from great pain. Laughter, wine, possessions, the pleasures of life. They are either medications or they're gifts. Either we are using them to medicate us for our pain or their gifts from God to be enjoyed look at verse 3 I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life pleasure can only be safe if God is central. We can enjoy the pleasures of this life only when we have received them as the gifts from God's hands rather than the source for our ultimate joy and meaning. There was a poet, Anne Bradstreet. She writes, Only God satiates the soul. C.S. Lewis will put it this way, if, if you ever have a desire that cannot be satisfied in this world, it means that that desire was made for another world. And that's the way it often is. We climb the mountain to achievement, or we climb the mountain uh, to money, or we climb the mountain to a legacy, and we find nothing there, but we were supposed to find nothing there, because there is nothing there. We were always supposed to be in relationship to God. It's the way we were designed to be as humans. To the degree that, we, that God is the center of our lives, can we enjoy the gifts that he has given us? 
That's how he satiates our souls. How about work? The preacher gives us a list of great accomplishments that he makes. Verse 4, I built houses and planted vineyards. Verse 5, I made gardens and parks. In verses 6 and 7, he says, I've accumulated a lot of possessions, including people. It's very interesting that he includes people, both slaves and mistresses. Verse 8, he's amassed great wealth. Verse 9, I enjoyed great music, good wine, and beautiful women. And then in verse 11... I mean, verse 10, he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He just told you all those great pleasures. And he says, there's none I didn't deny myself. And so 11, he concludes, Behold, it was all vanity. It was all striving after wind. Whenever you get to the top of any mountain that you're climbing, there's nothing there. One British writer says, I wish I had known what I know now, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. The preacher's not trying to depress us, although it is depressing. He's trying to free us. You say, it's, a, it's an odd way to free you, but all surgery is an odd way to heal someone. You pay someone to do violence to your body? In order for it to be healed, God sometimes has to do great violence to our souls for them to be freed from the mountains that we're climbing. One last one, and that's legacy, and I think that speaks a lot to us. We want to leave a mark in this world. We want our lives to have mattered in this world. We want to be able to say, this is what I did. This is what I will be remembered for. That's the whole idea behind tombstones and markers, buildings with our names on them, schools named after us. It's all this idea that I need to leave some kind of legacy. How does the, how does the preacher handle people's mountain-seeking legacy? The preacher reminds us that all of us, no matter, no matter what, share a single event that speaks to the desire to mark our lives. Everyone in this room, everyone that has ever been a human being, everyone who has ever lived and ever will live, share this one common single event. We all die. Verse 14, the wise person has his eye in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He's just saying it doesn't matter whether you're a fool or a wise person. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all. Verse 16, for the wise as the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. He not only depresses us because he reminds us that we're here briefly, but then he goes on and says it doesn't matter whether you are wise or foolish, when you die, nobody remembers you. So if you weren't depressed over the fact that you're eventually going to die, you definitely are depressed that nobody's going to remember. Why is vanity, that idea of living for legacy, why is that even in our hearts to desire to do? Verse 18, I hated all my toil, I hated all my striving, 
in which I strive under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me and who will know knows whether it will be a wise or a fool person. Yet he will be master over all for which I have striven and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the striving of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not strive for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. You hear what he's saying? He says, you might have lived, left a great legacy. And, the, and history is replete with these stories. Someone who has done something grand and left it to the next generation, and the next generation ruined it. That's his fear. And so this leaves us with this single question for us today. If you can't find joy and meaning in those things, where can you find joy and meaning that allows you to enjoy those things? Do you notice something that was missing from our text all the way until you get to verse 24? Not one mention until verse 24. God. And then he's mentioned three times. There is nothing better for a person than that. He should eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. This is why Martin Luther, in his little bitty uh, commentary on this section, says this is the turning point in Ecclesiastes. He's run through the gamut of things he's given himself to, that he's searched for meaning and joy from. And he, and he turns and he says, but it can only be found in God alone. It's the turning point because real meaning and lasting joy is from the hand of God. It cannot be something that you pursue. It's not a mountain to climb. It is something to be received. It is something that is given. Meaning and joy are gifts. From the hand of God. They are given. Therefore they're not acquired or achieved. When we seek. To make. Our meaning and purpose. And joy. In work. In wisdom. In pleasure. In legacy. They're meaningless. They're vapor. They're here today. And they're gone tomorrow. That's the irony of Ecclesiastes. And if we don't see that. Then it's a depressing book. If you pursue meaning and joy apart from God, everything is vanity. But if you pursue God, if you live a God-centered life, then God will give you meaning and joy. You pursue meaning and joy without God and you get neither. Pursue God and he will give you both. If you look to God for meaning and joy, then he will give us These things to enjoy. To different degrees. Some will have more and some will have less. But no matter what you receive, it is a gift. It was never meant to be your ultimate. This is what the preacher is telling us in verse 26. We can enjoy the good gifts that come from his hand only if we don't try to make them the ultimate things. 
the central things. When we live this way, we please God with our lives. Because it's an insult to find our source of joy and meaning in these things. If God is the center and we live on the periphery, then it is God who says, what am I? Chop liver? I made you and I made everything in the world. We are to enjoy them. You remember that back at the very beginning? God's given us these things to enjoy. Christians are not the ones who sit around with sour faces. We enjoy the good gifts of God, not because they're our ultimate, but because they come from the very hand of God, who is our ultimate. See, Jesus has already done this for us. You remember Philippians 2? Do you remember that passage where it, where it says that he humbled himself? He had everything in the world, all the all the wisdom and all of the accomplishments. He made everything by the word of his power. And he laid everything aside. For what purpose? To come into this world, into this broken place where there are broken people and broken things and make them new. He's already left the mountaintop to come down to us to bring us to that mountain. We find true life in Christ alone. Which allows us to enjoy everything he has given. Our work. Your work matters because God gave that work to you. Wisdom matters because God is the author of all true wisdom. I've been on this uh, a blog post this week where people are saying that N.T. Wright, who's a writer, that we should never quote from him because there are some things he said that are untrue. And I, and I like this quote that someone shared. I wish I had thought it of myself. All truth is God's truth, even if Satan speaks it. There's not, there's not truth that, that someone can utter that's true truth that doesn't come from God even if it is Satan who is speaking it. If we could begin to look at our studies, you can imagine a, a, a high schooler who's wondering why, why math has any, any future for him or her. Or, or history. I used to give, when I was a history teacher, I used to give this pop quiz, what's your favorite subject, what's your least favorite subject? And math and history were always vying at the bottom. And at the top was lunch. <laughs> Some people just want to major in that. But here's, here's the point. Your studies in school matter. Not because it's going to give you a job. But all truth is God's truth. Whether it comes from a believer or an unbeliever. It's still true truth. You might be an athlete. You might be gifted in your body. That is a gift from God to be used. Not to be abused, but to be enjoyed. 
the game. I'll tell you when it's time to quit. When you no longer enjoy. Because it was meant to be enjoyed, not just labored. You can go on and on. There are so many things. Leaving a legacy. Leaving a legacy is a great thing. Uh, Floyd and Jim, you have left a great legacy for all of us. And it would have been striving after the wind if that was where you got your meaning and purpose. But the beauty of knowing you two, that's not true. But it is for us to enjoy because they have left us a legacy. You see, this is why Ecclesiastes is such a good book for this time. Because we have turned the gifts into the ultimates. And therefore, we don't enjoy them or him. But if we will seek to enjoy him through Christ, we get to enjoy all of them. You're out on the golf course and the ball goes into the water and you're so frustrated. That's good. Because now you know you live in a broken world. That's what I blame every time. It's not me. That ball was broken. That club is broken. But we are to enjoy that. Every day outside is a beautiful day because it's a day the Lord has made and given to us. That doesn't mean we don't get sad and discouraged, but it is about perspective, isn't it? That every day that God has given you to live is a gift from him. Let's ask the Lord to bless this day. Father, thank you so much for the gift of this day where we get to be together with you, of course, as the center of our worship, the center of our morning, the center of our day. We thank you so much that you have decided to meet with your people here today and given us this joy. But also we take great joy in being with each other and to encourage one another and to come alongside those that are particularly struggling, striving in this life and to bring encouragement and support and if necessary, sacrifices on our part to lift them up because one day we will need it too. And so we thank you that you've put people in our lives who can lift us up too. Father, we thank you for our work and our pleasure and for our wisdom and for the legacy that we will leave. We pray, Heavenly Father, that they never become our ultimate things, that they are always something to be enjoyed as gifts from you for however long you decide to give them to us. And when you take them away, though we may long for them and miss them, they were never the ultimate things in the first place. You always are. You plus nothing is still everything, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.